Hey, Tim. Hey, Julia. How's it going? Pretty good. Who did we talk to today? We talked to Jeremy Yada. He is a first for our podcast because he is a percussionist and a music arranger and orchestrator. Awesome. I'm excited to hear what he's got to say. What are the statistics on that and how many bugs you eat in a lifetime? Oh, like spiders and things? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's like nine a year or nine. No, I think it's like a cup a night of spiders. I think is this. Oh, a cup a night. I think that's the statistic. That's more spiders than there are in the world. That sounds exactly right. (laughs) So did we? Am I right that on this very day you posted like an announcement for? I'm going to say it wrong. Yaddle music. Yaddle. Yaddle. Yeah. Because I don't know Susan. What's her last name? I assume it's uh, Uh, Susan Mandel. Mandel. Okay. It's yes. It's a a portmanteau as they uh, fashionably call it now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to know about it? Yeah. Uh, so Susan and I have known each other for a long time and we've played like a smattering of gigs together over the past several years. And last year we started a duo project, a percussion and cello duo project. And we did a, a gig at Transpicos and we did a gig at Rockwood 3 together. And we like play weird music, improvise things and play weird instruments and stuff like that. But we've been talking uh, recently about our shared desire to do more music contracting which is like i don't know how much you know about that world but especially uh in the theater world there are there's a role called music contractor which is the person who hires musicians for pit orchestras and um right now there are a few major players in that world and uh it's that that role uh has become kind of an exclusive club um pit orchestras are as the theater world is um very predominantly white and strongly male in in pit orchestras and susan and i both have a really deep desire to uh try to shake that up and provide people with a contracting option that is like explicitly uh driven toward better representation of genders and ethnicities and orientations and and those kinds of things so that the Peter orchestra world can maybe start looking a little bit more like the world of musicians looks in general so that's kind of been our uh mo and we're also going to offer orchestrations and arranging and music copy you know like take the skills that we both have and and try to apply them try to get some people interested and and on board and like you know, overturn the <laughs> patriarchy of the pit orchestra a little bit. <laughs> so I have so many questions about this world. Yeah. The first one that comes to my mind just hearing about it is when people are contracting musicians, how much are they sort of matching based on like style and aesthetic and pl- of playing? And how much is it just like all the good players can play everything who's available? Uh, uh, in the theater world, it's interesting because uh, especially with, well, with all all players in the theater world like in in order to be successful you have to have a really diverse set of skills and what that can sometimes mean is that uh, people who have a really diverse set of skills uh, don't have specific skills that they're like extremely strong in Mm -hmm. so there's like you know most of the theater drummers that I know can play so many different styles and are good at so many different styles uh, but it part of the contractor's job is to maybe hone in on what somebody's really specific strengths are and match them with a the show. Um, 
and there, there are certain players out there who that, that's really easy to do because they do everything well. But there are certain shows that, like if a show is like particularly groove and pocket based, uh, you might not want somebody who's more of a trained classical percussionist to play the drum set book. So you've got to know those things about about those people. And it's also a big part of of the contracting world is about um, finding groups of people who are going to work well and match together personality wise because they're going to be in a pit together eight times a week for who knows how long and um that's actually one of the things that i love about that model of hiring people as opposed to like auditioning like like blind auditions um because with a with an audition process like major orchestras use them radio city uses them some broadway contractors use hold auditions for shows and what what it gets you like it can easily get you like a room full of completely killing players um but what it doesn't account for is those personality matches and also when you have blind auditions um you know you can you can say that it's totally objective and it's totally uh you know a fair process but it doesn't account for sort of uh institutionalized or systemic biases that the musician world that exists in the musician world you know so if you if you audition for a major symphony orchestra, you're probably still going to get mostly white people because that's the culture of classical music. And so you're not able to address uh, the the areas of diversity and, and things like that. It's interesting because at first process. blush, like selecting for personality and people getting along sounds like it could be a euphemism for like getting a bunch of us white guys together. Well, that's what it's become. That's what it's that's what the established um scene has kind of become and that's what susan and i are like sort of trying to purposefully push against that's not not not, like, not like our art we're not out to like unseat anybody or like you know overthrow anybody like uh get in on anybody's territory necessarily but provide people and producers who like who are like yes we want to better represent the diversity of the musician community within our theater organization you know Maybe they'll come to us because we've said that that's what we want to provide. That's our hope. Yeah, I'm realizing that when I, like, I usually do the thing of, like, find musicians I know I like, and now that I have a couple that I know I like, always using them. Yeah. Do you think that it is actually sort of, like, better for composers to be trying to meet more players, like... We, I guess it's like I guess everyone has some sort of like part of responsibility for diversity in all parts of their thing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with finding people that you mesh with well and and using them over and over again. But I would like I would maybe make a, a liken it to um, having a variety of writing partners, where you know if you if you work with different kinds of writing partners, you might find things in yourself that you wouldn't if you worked with all, with the same person all the time and that's another reason to i mean that would be another reason to like vary your roster of players because you might find things interpretations of your your songs that you you wouldn't with with the same people that you use all the time i don't know if i'm talking myself out of a job right <laughs> now but <laughs> well that's i mean so i've been noticing all of the things the the like chart life videos that you posted mm -hmm. which i think are awesome and I guess I'm curious, like, you seem to, like, have really specific ideas of, like, how to, uh, well, to prepare your chart, but also, like, t like, to, like, approach that whole element of, 
what I really want to know is like, do you feel like you, do you feel like different drummers bring different things to like the same thing written on the page? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Which is, which is why I think it's important. Like uh, there's a balance, like when you're writing drum charts, for instance, there's a balance between notating things very specifically and using slashes in yeah. order to leave things open to interpretation for a player. Um, and that's where, I mean, that's where a contractor comes in and works with the composer or the music director to like find the, the, the person, the right person to, uh, to perform like what they're envisioning. Um, but yeah, I mean, e every, every player is different. Every yeah. player has a different background and a different, different set of skills. And I guess what I'm curious about is like, how, like, how, <laughs> how, like, how do you account for that? Do you know what I mean? When you're writing charts or when, when you're like figuring out who, like, like, how do you know what, what different players are going to do? You don't at first. I mean, you try them out. Great. <laughs> Great. You get to know them or, or you, you, you know, you, you talk to other people about them or you uh -huh. listen to what the work that they've done and, um, I mean, it's a learning as as with uh, hiring and working with different actors. You know, you learn yeah. you learn them as you work with them and live your life, and and uh, that's the only way to do it, really. I think. Another that's thing I'm interested in how you learned and picked up is the skill of talking to composers about drum parts, because I feel like a lot of us, myself included, come in knowing not very much. And like, I've definitely been in rehearsals, AKA before we met, where you can have like a 20 minute conversation where you're sort of trying to describe what yeah. the part is and they're saying words and you, <laughs> it's not working. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a real challenge in what I do because a lot of the time I wind up at a rehearsal with a drum part that uh, doesn't give me a lot of information or with just a piano vocal part and someone is expecting me to like make something up, uh, which I've gotten pretty good at. But, but then there's, there's that whole conversation about, um, like you said, like the vocabulary, not, not meshing or, or not being lined up. And there's a little bit of responsibility on the part of the, composer to to learn vocabulary and there's a lot of responsibility on the part of the player in those situations to like be open and to uh be patient and like uh just try a lot of stuff out you know and sometimes what sometimes works really well and what what some people have habitually done for me is like giving me reference reference recordings like there's there are there's one person in particular that I work with a lot who, when he's writing new stuff, uh, he'll, he'll say, he'll send me a Spotify playlist and say, huh. okay, the groove on such and such a song that I wrote, I want to sort of, sort of be in this world, or I, I want to like be an exact cop of this groove that I sort of wrote a song around. And that can actually be really useful. It takes a little more time on my part, like in prep, uh, which is okay. Uh, but through, through that learning process for that person in particular it's been a really useful tool yeah that's interesting because i feel like when i listen to music i don't tend to be able to separate out this is the element that is the groove or the drum track mm. i feel mm -hmm. like i'd have to train my brain yeah but i because i definitely do that you know like writing songs you i think of like reference songs yeah but to me i worry that like if i'm sort of saying the groove is this groove i'm like oh god is that plagiarism right 
Right. Well, everything's plagiarism a little bit, <laughs> right? Everything, nothing is ori- truly original. True. So you, you, you have to decide where, where you draw that line for yourself, I guess. So when, when you do show up and you find sort of like a spare drum part or like, or like the communication between you and the composer isn't great, like how do you approach like filling it in to, like how do you approach that? Uh, on the first downbeat, I just try something. Uh-huh. And then we go from there. Great. <laughs> Occasionally, like what I try is exactly right. Is exactly what they are are li- looking for. Or sometimes they don't know what they're looking for, or don't really care all that much what I do. You know, they just want me to do something, or or they want me to contribute to the song, and they don't have a, a particularly strong opinion exactly how it how it goes. So I I just try something, and then we talk about it, and then they say, oh, can you try? something a little less busy can you try something a little more driving can you try something a little lighter a little more bass heavy and thumpy and so wow this is like a whole part of the process that i usually don't get to witness because it'll happen in like a band rehearsal i guess well you should you should come sometime just to witness it because it's it, it can be it can be a great way to uh i mean it might just be interesting to you to yeah to see how how those vocabularies develop and well because i'm like trying that. to like compare it to my gig mm-hmm. as an actor because like like there is a whole lot of interpretation and back and forth with the director about like what it is but at the end of the day there are like specific words i have to say and like specific places i have yeah. to go yeah so it's like it's just a whole lot more of it's just a whole lot more loosey-goosey yeah. than well, I personally would feel very comfortable with. <laughs> well, yeah, so like imagine getting a script and like there's a page of the script that says uh, no just say, an, yeah. say an, a, a little emotional solilo- soliloquy right. here. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I would be terrified. Yeah. So is it just like, are you, are you, do you just like have the kind of personality where you're like, cool, let's try it? Or have you just like built up that skill set? Um, I have that personality to some extent. Um you know when when a lot at times when a lot of my gigs are like that it starts to get a little bit trying like sure. and the, part of the reason that i created these chart life videos and especially in particular the the one about drum charts is to try to give composers and arrangers a tool like a way to to a little bit more a little bit more easily give a little bit better information to to drummers and to rhythm section players yeah um it's you know i, I sometimes worry that like with these videos and tutorials and things that I'm being pedantic or like I'm like shaming people or something. But my my intent is just to like give people some tools that they can use, you know? Yeah, I don't think they come across. I mean, I guess I know we'll come to the part of our podcast where we talk about vocabulary. I feel like p- people use pedantic to, you know, mean like mm, you were like patronizing me. But like if it literally means to teach, it's like you are teaching us something because we true. do not know it. True, yes. Thank you for bringing us back to the uh, the true meaning of that word (laughs) (laughs) pedantry so speaking of sort of chart lights and sort of yadel Mm -hmm. yadel music so you are someone who i think of as being like really good at sort of like the hustle entrepreneurial part of being like this is a thing i love doing how do i translate this into this like a a viable way to make money yeah does that come pretty naturally to you too um i mean at first when i first moved to new york it was kind of just a survival tactic you know like like here i am i ha- i have to make money somehow i want to do it playing music so i have to 
put myself in every possible situation where that can happen. Um, I have to cold email people that I don't know and that I'm never going to hear back from. You know, d when, I, when I first got to New York, I was like sending dozens of emails a week to, just uh -huh. to people to be like, hey, I'm in New York. Here's what I do. Hi. <laughs> and, you know, a small number of them would reply to me and a smaller number of them would be like, hey, I've got a gig for you. Um, and I mean, I guess, I mean, t having been here 10 years and uh, having built something of a career, I guess I would have to say that it comes naturally enough for me that I've been able to do it and not <laughs> <laughs> not give up or leave New York, you know. But it's it's also something like at this point, it's interesting that you mentioned that because at this point I'm less i'm much less uh willing to hustle huh. I, I don't have to hustle as much now because a lot of my work comes to me through referrals and through repeat business by this point but like the idea now of of continuing to engage in that kind of hustle is just exhausting mm. like as i get older i'm like a lot less willing to punish myself like that to me that feels like a younger person's game yeah <laughs> which i was at one point a younger <laughs> person oh my god me too <laughs> i wasn't no i believe still the young person yeah, yeah. <laughs> that i always was mm -hmm. i know that like sometimes when we talk to actors and we're talking about like you know is your dream being in a broadway show forever or is it you know having all this variety when i think about like arranging and comp composition type stuff that feels really project based but do you yeah. think you would be happy being in like a Broadway pit or just some super long running thing um I think I would I, I haven't had that opportunity <laughs> yet I mean I've the probably the longest run of a show that I've ever had is maybe six weeks six or eight weeks um but when I'm in situations like that I mean granted that's not a very long amount of time in the in the grand scheme but I really love the the feeling once we get into it of going and playing the same show night after night there's a, there's something zen about it to me mm. but there's also like an opportunity within that to like once i know the show well to like really hone in on things about my playing that maybe i want to improve or analyze and um and also in in new york um in broadway pits there's uh musicians can take off half their shows and still retain their job so i think if i if i had a long-running show like that i would approach it that way and take off you know, not be afraid to take time off because I, I, you know, I have to keep my number one, I have to keep my brain active with other things. And number two, it's easy to, to just play all your eight shows a week, every week, and then get really isolated from the rest of the scene. Um, yeah. I, I have a friend who played cats for 11 years oh, man. and, uh, when he got done with cats, he was kind of just back out on the scene and in 11 years there's a lot that changes in new york and he's that's like didn't really 11 know anybody cycles of the graduate musical theater that's exactly program. right that's exactly <laughs> 11 showcases that you missed <laughs> to connect with young actors and things so there are a couple oh. reasons to take off yeah that's interesting yeah i'm kind of curious going back a little bit talking like i guess i never not having witnessed this like band rehearsal dynamic like do you when you're working when you're like in the room like on working on a new project like do you feel like a collaborator or do you sort of feel like a like 
like it's just a gig. Do you know what I mean? Like I do. Uh, yeah. Well, um, there, there are, I, I, I sometimes feel like there are two ways that I function in my job, uh-huh. two primary ways that I function. And sometimes they overlap, but one is as a utility person, yeah. a person who's there to like, if I'm subbing on a show, my job is to be there to impersonate somebody. Right. Or if I'm playing in a top 40 band, my job is to be part of a band that's impersonating a Michael Jackson song, right. you know? So, so in that sense, um, it can be f- absolutely fun, um, and, and, and really enjoyable, but it, it's not necessarily creative. Um, but in, in situations, and this is why I love working with theater writers because there is an opportunity often in those situations to be a, a creative voice in what's happening. Yeah. And I've, I've felt that very strongly with you, Julia, over the years, like that, that that we've always been we've we've had so many of those conversations in the yeah. room about like maybe this is what this can feel like and and then I'll try present something and you'll say you know we'll we'll tweak and tweak and tweak and and in in those situations although the work can be slow in coming sometimes or slow in like finding itself uh, it does feel like I have some creative input and that's what I that's what I like about thank it thank goodness <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 I was when we were out in San Diego. Um, it like really hit home for me, like how, how much, um, like performing, like I was out on stage by myself, but like the like tension and push and pull between me and the band was so much a part of the performance. And I, I was just really thinking about that recently. The, the, the person, the, the purposeful tension. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) because <laughs> there's the, there the are energy, other kinds of tension between actors <laughs> and band too between the actor and the band yeah and like who's leading who when and yeah 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 and it's interesting too because i feel like from the composer lens it's like at first i feel like i had a lot of guilt about like well if i didn't put it on the page it's not fair to just make jeremy make it up and then you know like still say you know it's a song by julia but well i mean there's there are things you can do to give credit to the band if they, if, and when you feel like they've uh, been an integral part of creating your arrangements, you know, some, every once in a while, somebody will give me a little credit, like additional percussion. Oh, I love that. uh, Just literally a percussion credit. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Just like a little thing. That that we're saying this now, because I don't think I've ever done that because it never occurred to me that that's a thing you could do, but like, you can do whatever you want, Julia. That makes so much (laughs) sense. Oh, I love that. (laughs) <laughs> I'm curious, the answer to this might be no, but do you feel like you would all get a sense of like how a composer thinks about music or like how their brain works from seeing their drum charts? Um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm thinking now specifically about your drum charts and your early drum charts. <laughs> and um, I, my recollection is that your early drum charts almost all looked almost exactly the same <laughs> that would yeah which and they they have a very uh i mean this is a, this is like esoteric for your listeners but they have they have a very um specific uh visual quality huh. which which is a quality of like space and openness and airiness and i think that i think that that came that has come through in the way that that i've interpreted your your songs. I love that. I don't know. Yeah, because now I feel like since we mean since I mainly work with you, unless you're not free or something, 
I feel like now when I sit down to even do a skeleton of a drum chart for what I'm going to give you, it's like what I'm thinking of is the way you've played on other pieces. You know what sure. I mean? Yeah. So it's like a feedback loop, I feel. Yeah, yeah. I think that's great. I, uh, there, there are a few people that I think I've developed some kind of like ESP relationships with like with that and and you're one of them like on on other gigs sometimes mm-hmm. I find myself writing notes like Julia symbol world <gasps> so it's like it's it's like really permeated oh, I like how that. I think of my own drumming vocabulary sometimes wow yeah so when you when you were talking about when you first moved here and you were just like cold emailing people or call, what calling whatever mm-hmm. Um, were you like specifically aiming towards musical theater or was it just sort of like anything and everything and this is sort of what stuck? I was specifically aiming toward music theater. And music why theater. was that? Uh, well, I I fell in love with musicals in high school. Uh-huh. I In 10th grade, I played a production of 42nd Street in in my high school and just fell in love with like the larger than life aspect of a theater production the, the the fact that there are so many departments and everyone uh has very specific skills that they are excellent at and that at the same time all these people are doing their jobs to create this enormous thing and uh i felt it felt great to be part of that to be like to feel like i was a cog in the in the wheel of like making this huge elaborate shiny thing and um i became like a tiny bit of a theater geek in high school like we would come to new york on school trips and like geek out about seeing miss saigon and Falouse and whatever and and uh and then i went to college and got my degrees in music education i was kind of like flattered into like into joining like the music education program at the Mm. school I went to and then taught for four years. And, but I always, but, but musical theater was, was always something that I enjoyed being part of. Even when I was teaching, like in the schools around, uh, around in the area where I worked, there were every spring, everybody would do their productions. So like within two months I would play like six different shows because they would all hire the teachers from all the other schools. So, and and I loved that. And then um, I got I started to get really burnt out on teaching. And and Jenny and I decided to move to the city. I mean, it was kind of like for me, it was like this is the only place where I can go and try to be a part of this world in a in a serious way. Um, so it's been it's always been something that I I love doing. Sweet. You know, and I do all sorts of other gigs too. Like yeah, I I, I like. In the 10 years that I've been here, I've never played a Broadway show, which is fine. Um, it's become a little less of like the golden apple for me than that it used to be, especially getting here and discovering all the things that are going on like below the the shiny Broadway <laughs> level yeah. that are fulfilling and interesting. And I think my MO has become more like I just want to make great pe- music with great people and I don't really care how it happens. Do you think your teaching experience background like illuminates anything about what you're doing now? Yeah, it it really does. Um I am really grateful that I did that. Um it it ultimately wasn't the the thing that I needed to do forever, but I taught uh middle school and high school bands mostly and I learned so much about uh 
what different instruments can do and um, group dynamics and things like that. I mean, it's 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 maybe mostly led to um, understandings of orchestration and arranging and yeah. like and 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 what I do in those areas, instrument ranges, capabilities, those kinds of things. There was a point where I was like, I could keep up with your average eighth grader on pretty much every instrument. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of like. I think often about like, uh, uh, I hope I'm not like talking out of my butt here, but um, I think about like how Mel Brooks wrote the music for the producers, but like, I'm pretty sure like Mel Brooks didn't like create like the sound of the music in the producers. Like that feels very much like what the arranger did. Sure. Like, like how do you, I just want to hear you talk about like what, how an arranger can like affect the can affect the effect of the music um not knowing that much about mel brooks as a musician i mean it's i i don't need to talk specifically about that because i actually <laughs> don't know for a fact that he didn't do that you know what right. i mean but well it's it's i think it's a good framework to approach the question from because like mel brooks obviously has a good sense for rhythm rhythm and comedy and and pacing and these kinds of things so like it wouldn't be surprised it wouldn't surprise me if he like wrote all these great songs plunked them out on on the piano or something and then uh had an arranger you know help shape them right um and then of course the the orchestrator is the person who like makes them into the thing for the full for all the musicians yeah so wait what is the difference between the arranger and the orchestrator then in a situation where there's both i think i use those terms to mean like the same thing uh yeah they they sometimes they get used synonymously and i think that the differences in in my usage and my understanding um the arranger is kind of the person who uh helps structure the song if that makes sense like decide um the the arranger might say let's cut two bars of the verse here so we get to the pre-chorus sooner and then let's move the bridge over here and then the orchestrator is the person who who takes everything and writes all the instrumental parts so by the time the orchestrator gets it like the song the song and all its parts are set by the arranger and there's also the the vocal arranger too is another role that you see another title that you see which is usually different from the the quote-unquote orchestrator on a sh- on a show anyway and then sometimes you hear dance arranger mm-hmm. which um i mean i think i don't know i mean i guess the dance arranger is i don't know <laughs> I, i'm not sure it's funny because i feel like if you start out you know you're like new out of school and you're a composer you have to do everything yourself Unless yeah. you happen to have, like, a best friend who likes you and, you know, yeah. wants to do these things for you for free. So I feel like when I first got out of school, I was like, who can I find who can orchestrate for me? And the answer was no one. And then I started doing all my own orchestration. And now I feel so interested in it and protective of it. Now I feel like I'd be, even though I recognize that all the professional orchestrators out there know more about orchestration than I do. Mm. At this point, I feel so invested in, like, that creative part of it. I feel like I'd be scared to, like, hand it off, you know? Yeah. Which is fine. Well, because, yeah, because from where I'm sitting, it feels like 
the arranger and the orchestrator can have a really big impact on the music. Yeah. And it feels as much theirs as it does the composer's. Sure. Um, and so it makes perfect sense to me why a composer would want to feel more ownership. Yeah. 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 But then on the other hand, I guess it's like, when you think about, like, say, having kids and you're like, I'm so excited to squish my DNA with my, you know, partner's DNA. Yeah. Like, it is also sort of cool, the idea of taking another composer and being like, this thing is this beautiful hybrid. Yeah. Because I feel like I'm not one of those composers. Like, I never want to just, like, sit in the room with another composer and write a song at the same time. Like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah. But maybe if it was a cleanly handed off thing. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just just like working with different musicians or different writing partners, like if you were to hire an orchestrator, uh, but and what you would do is you would probably find an orchestrator whose other things you like, yeah, and kind of assume that they would that their vision would mesh with with yours, and you know you would certainly discover some things, whether you like them or not. You would discover yeah. some yeah. things, and and some things you would probably like, and some things maybe you wouldn't like, but. But how do you distinguish between what that arranger or orchestrator did with what you're listening to with what that composer did? You know what I mean? Like if you're looking for someone to to work with as an orchestrator or arranger, how do you distinguish between when you're listening to work that they've worked on? How do you distinguish between their contribution versus the composer's contribution? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um Well, I, I I guess it kind of depends. Like, obviously, Julia, you not obviously. <laughs> I guess this is a question. When you when you write a song, do you write it at the piano, or do you write it with an orchestration in mind, or do you does it does it orchestrate itself in bits and pieces as you're writing the song? To me, it depends on the piece. Like when I was doing Pregnancy Pact, which was my first full-length musical with Gordon, which was also my first time trying to write for sort of like a rockish ensemble. It was guitar, bass, drums, piano, and a couple strings. Since I knew I always think piano, I'm never going to like be thinking in terms of guitar. I yeah. made myself orchestrate as I go, so I didn't get a bunch of these, you know, totally inappropriate piano lines just sort of plopped onto mm, a guitar. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if it's something that feels like a piano is going to be heavily involved anyway... Which, not to say that piano wasn't heavily involved in Pregnancy Pact, but if it feels like it's going to be pianistic to begin with, then I feel like I can get away with more just doing it and then thinking of orchestration as a separate yeah. thing after the fact. I like to know orchestration at the beginning, though, because I feel like it does, it affects so much like the style of what you're writing anyway. Yeah, and, and, and what you write, uh, to me, is a lot about color. And so, and so to it makes perfect sense like if you're thinking about the orchestrations as you're writing, because... Like it's it's colorful. It, it feels like it's colorful coming out of you, as opposed to like being a song that then an orchestrator adds color to. That is so cool. Thank you. That makes me feel really good. <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question, Sam, at all. Well, I mean, you're talking about a person who writes and orchestrates herself, right. and I guess what I'm wondering about is like if Julia decided she didn't want to orchestrate, and she was looking at potential collaborators to work with like how could she distinguish between the work of the composer and the work of the orchestrator you know what i mean herself it, being the composer yeah if, no, well i mean like you're saying like you can see what they've done before and if you like it you'll probably like what they do with you mm -hmm. but so like if she's listening to what they've done before how does she 
how does she distinguish in her head between the the contribution of that composer and that uh, orchestrator? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because um, it is there is so much interplay between them. Yeah. Um, I, I I don't know. I mean, I guess to me that would be another instance where you like Julie, if you were shopping for orchestrators, you would listen to shows that you think are beautiful and colorful that just, just just sort of like speak to your soul that the orchestrations just speak to your soul and then have a conversation with with the orchestrator about that like um uh, i think about janine tesori and john clancy who orchestrates for her sometimes yeah and he i don't know if he did all the orchestrations on shrek but i think he did a handful of them and he also orchestrated fun home and these are like two wildly different shows both by the same composer but like both totally different in tone so uh, us number one she's a skilled composer who has remarkable range and john clancy is a skilled orchestrator who also has remarkable range so uh, a, a skilled orchestrator will be able to understand the tone of what you want and then contribute to it accordingly um, and like musicians or like actors, any orchestrator has like particular things that, that maybe they're strong in. Um, so if, if you, you, I guess you, you figure it out as you go, just yeah. like, just like any other relationship, just like any other collaborative relationship. You hope you start with something that, that you're following an instinct. You hope it's going to be good. If it is, you follow it. If it's not, you diverge. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's true, too. I feel like when I was younger, I more had the sense that every instance of a piece of music of yours being performed or, you know, certainly recorded is like the last chance you'll ever have to get it right. 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 And that makes it unhelpfully scary and yeah. high stakes. Yeah. yeah, it also it also speaks to like the the danger of uh, having like some kind of perfection as your as your goal. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, if 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 you truly want to like be live your life as a creative person like there are times where when you're gonna have to be like that was interesting let's <laughs> keep going now <laughs> like you're you're never you're you're never going to have a production of a show and be like this is perfect i can now you know do the next thing it reminds me of, i was just at this opera conference like i guess a month and a half ago and John Adams gave one of the keynotes cool. and he was talking about like being at the premiere of your opera. And it was, I forget what he was talking about. If he was like, you know, you have to just know that something, something that's bad and all the tempos will be wrong. Right. And I was like, really? Like John Adams just takes it for granted that all his tempos will be wrong at yeah. premieres. Yeah. But yeah, I guess even at these high echelons. Yeah. But how many, how, how many recordings out there are there out there of short ride in a fast machine at wildly different tempos and like they're all okay and they're all correct <laughs> because whoever's interpreting them has taken a little bit of license or a little bit of freedom and as the composer you in in my view like as a composer you're like this is this is what I've done and now all of you make it all of you make it and how, and and yeah. you're going to add your creative contributions to this I However love that, that ideologically. I feel like I come into the same worry that, like Sam, you were saying about if they hear it, you know, it's say a crazily different tempo than what you originally wrote it at. This idea, like maybe 
it's funny. I have this one friend, and we always have this big, like, ongoing debate about how much authorial intention matters. Mm. But just this idea that, like, everyone will think I imagined it fast, but I imagined it slow, you know, like, somehow yeah. worries me. But I don't know why. Uh, I, I understand that. I mean, you, you, you want the representation of your work out in the world to be the way you envision it. And that makes sense. And if you paint a painting, you have a lot more control sure. over that. But if you are if if you don't want to surrender some of that control, then don't license your thing <laughs> or yeah. or just record it and don't allow anyone else to interpret it ever again. But you're yeah. right. That sounds so sad. I don't want to do that. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely sad because it's not a collaborative part of being a creative human in the world of other creative humans. Yeah, I'm curious, Sam, hearing I think of you as someone who enjoys getting pretty close to perfection? Oh, God. <laughs> I'm I mean, I don't know if enjoy is the right <laughs> word. I think, like, my, is there, like, a verb form of, com like, compulsed? Like, I'm <laughs> compulsed to being close to perfection? I don't know. I mean, like, uh, the hearing this talk today is, like, reminding me that, like, perfection is a myth and, like, I should, like, learn to let go a little better. But, but uh, what do you want to know? <laughs> I was just curious if the, if the Jeremy idea of, you know, sometimes it's just going to be weird and that's okay <laughs> resonates with you. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's a nice thought because sometimes I think a lot of my, um, a lot of why I want everything to be right, mm -hmm. quote unquote, is because I don't want anyone to think that like I'm the one who did it wrong, <laughs> mm -hmm. but then you have to remember that like there is really no right or wrong when it comes to art and um and you're just sort of making it up and and uh and and especially when it's so collaborative and there are so many different ideas coming from so many different places like there really is no one right thing so and and, and also there's no really one way to like pin any blame on anyone <laughs> which is which is comforting i think yeah. <laughs> and not not, o not only like you mentioned is is perfection a myth uh, but uh, i i've started to to really feel like striving for it too hard is unhealthy oh yeah because all all, all the, it, that it really means is that you are zoning in on what you perceive as your own faults and like you're purposely punishing yourself and not allowing yourself to move forward totally and to and to try something else I read something recently like about uh, like poetry writing, like the poet who s strives per for perfection will will fix the same line over and over again until none of the lines are right. Mm. And so I think allowing for the fact that not everything you do is going to be the end all be all of your creative self yeah. gives us a lot more freedom to create more things and to just let them exist do you think Fuck they it. need to like establish some sort of like platform of aiming at perfectionism before you can let yourself go do you know what i mean like oh. do you mean like honing technical skills yeah i guess um i th i guess so i mean um I, I as a player sometimes i get frustrated in moments where i don't have the technical skill to execute something that i want to execute mm. And so if I 
spend the time to hone that technical skill, then it opens my body and my creative self up to then use that skill in the context of creating something that's creative. Um, I, I like that, that. The difference between like a skill and a capacity versus any specific execution yeah. feels helpful. Yeah, because when you're when you're training your body, I mean, developing technical skills is just training your muscle memory and training your body to do things effortlessly, and then you can, and then those things can just come out when you need them creatively. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Can I take a hard right turn Please. to a different topic? Sometimes we talk to people, I feel like, about things they put into social media that we like. Mm -hmm. And I am sort of obsessed with things or people too. Oh, yeah? <laughs> which is a hashtag you sometimes use. It is. It's, it's a hashtag that I, that I used to use a lot and I've sort of distanced myself from. Not, necess not necessarily. Well, I think I used it for a long time and, uh, and then was done with it. Not not for any reason other than I was like, okay, I'm n I will now release this. Huh. But what, what what do you love about it? Probably the same things I love about it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, I don't know if you mean it this way, but so what things are people too is, it's just pictures of like things in the world that look like they have faces or are doing human things. Right. And to me, it feels like, like this like blanket of empathy, like, oh no, like don't push that door too hard. Like it's a person too. I like that I just think it's like a friendly way of encountering the world. Yeah. <laughs> Is that basically your idea behind it too? No, I, I, I developed it um, out of like reading about evolutionary psychology and like our uh, innate instinct to, to see human form and human faces in inanimate objects because it, you know, it, it allows us to protect ourselves in a, in a hostile environment where if you assume something is a face, then you're going to be a little bit on guard for it and you are a little bit more likely to survive to reproductive age. So, so it fascinated sort of the opposite. That's interesting. It fascinated <laughs> me for that reason. And then I, and then I started to notice, notice those things more. And I, I literally came from it from a different perspective, but I love the way that you, uh, that you <laughs> see it, that you interpret it. And I just think it's cute. It is cute. It's yeah. very cute. It is also cute. <laughs> That's funny though, the, being able to let go of a thing and being like, this isn't like a thing that's like a current active thread. Yeah. I feel like that's hard for me to do. Well, it's funny too, because um, I sort of, I did that for a long time. And then as, as I was sort of feeling like releasing it is, is when a lot of people started like sending me all the things and oh. posting all the things, like as it was like peaking for everyone else, I was sort of over the hump with it. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> You've let it go into the world and now they can notice things with faces at any tempo they want. Absolutely right. That's so funny. Why do you feel like you have a hard time with letting go of these things? I think part of it is this like misplaced sense of like accountability of like, well, I established I'm doing this thing and now like I just, you know, what, I don't have time for it or I can't think of enough examples and that that's going to look like flaky, I guess. No. Oh, but like... Who, who are you accountable to? You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess it's this, like, at one hand, you can know that, like, no one really spends that much time looking at the thing. But still, just the fact that, like, someone could notice the drop-off, it's, like, this hypothetical person, I guess. It's the fourth person. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, un Unbearable Lightness of Being. I haven't read it. Milan Kundera, um... I, I'm not going to explain this well, so you'll probably have to cut it. But um, at, at some point in the book, um, 
presents these four four people or four motivations for doing things and one is like the the scene person the, like the desi- you want the desired person to see what you're doing a person you desire to see what you're doing you want uh you're definitely gonna have to cut this but but you should <laughs> but, so you, but you should read the book and then the fourth the fourth person is the the invisible the invisible person the invisible you you like do things for an for an unseen or an, or an invisible audience is it like is it like the audience you make up in your head or is it something different no it's not necessarily it's like it's uh like an uh, an idealization maybe of a person like sam if i was in love with you for a long time and then like i started doing things because i wanted you to see them but i didn't actually care i didn't actually want you to see them i just my imagination of you seeing them was my motivation for doing them uh, does that make uh, sense i feel like i do that in real life sometimes i do i i do that i do that definitely in real life yeah i really didn't follow that <laughs> <laughs> I was just excited that you were talking about being in love. I've with only you. been in love with you for a short time. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, like the idea that, you know, like if you had a teacher who you really liked, say, like say you had like, like a professor in writing, and then like sometimes I feel like if I'm writing and I'm like, oh, that's a little joke that like that teacher would like, and that makes me like like that joke more. Yeah, like that type of thing. Yeah, oh, that makes I sense. Get it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Without needing to you're like seeking, send it to the you're teacher. You're seeking the approval of, of someone or something whether you want them to whether physically approve it or, it or not. Okay. Interesting. Which I feel like is such a nice thing. Like it reminds me of that Mike Birbiglia bit about like when you find someone who you're in love with, it's because like you have some like secret special skill and then they like notice that secret special skill. Maybe this isn't that related, but I do think that like once there is someone who like you see all the time and are end up showing work to all the time, appreciating someone like oh, the kind of things I like are the kind of thing I do, I feel like, makes yeah. me feel more bonded to yeah. a person. Or someone who notices things in your own work that are, like, very s- internally special to you yeah. that almost no one else will maybe notice. Yes. But then someone, like, says, oh, I love how you turned that thing. And you're like, oh, my God, I love you so much. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I sometimes even feel that way with composers. Like, I feel like I have, like, certain even like i know chord progressions are really broad but like i have two or three that i'm like this is just objectively the best chords in the world and whenever i hear other composers do that i'm like is it their secret favorite too Ooh. do you feel a little bit uh unspecial when you hear them do that sometimes if i hear them this is going to sound so or silly do you feel like part of a club it depends on how they use them uh-huh. if i feel like a song is just sort of like lazily like they threw in the best chord progression and then they repeated it <laughs> 32 times and like they didn't do anything special. Then I feel like you're like not doing justice to these great chords uh. and then I'm annoyed. But if like they also at like the apex of their song do this progression that I think is the best progression, then I think right. I feel a sense of like kinship and companionship. Yeah. They're using it in a, in a special way. Yeah. They're not abusing its right. power. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, I guess, I'm curious, like, how you feel on this, like, perfection scale. Yeah, I feel like I tend not to be that hard on myself. Uh-huh. And I think the only times, and probably the least helpful times, when I feel it creeping in is when I have this sense of responsibility, if it is, like, 
the concert where this stuff will be heard for the first time when suddenly I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like the definitive thing. And now I've got to make sure that everything was thought out the right way or I think, I don't know. I'm not sure. My, I mean, my instincts, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Please. but like you're, you seem to me to be a fairly prolific person i mean you're always writing you're always you're always writing new things and to me like that's a person who is not too hung up on perfection yeah because you're you're constantly cre- creating more and more and more things and you can't do that if you're if you're just hung up on like mm-hmm. making sure that something is is perfect and yeah you know never never allowing it never letting it letting it go in a sense i do feel like i have a sense within shows i usually have like one or two songs that i think just musically are like these are the best songs and i'll be a little more (laughs) i don't know like even little things like i want to make sure that that song like gets like rehearsed so everyone's super comfy with it that's not quite perfectionism but it is this sort of like and this thing feels special yeah which is a little bit counter to the spirit of like playfulness maybe i don't know i mean if if you feel like as a as a purveyor of of dramatic shape and and emotion like if you feel like this song has a has a very specific role to play in in elevating some moment of the piece or something i mean that makes total sense to me like you want it to be perfect so that it can guide your audience or yeah or have a particular emotional impact yeah and I, i know i've said this before but like the idea of like leveling up where like if if something, it feels like there is some alchemy of things, and if you reach it, it's like, oh, the thing works. And if you don't reach it, you're sort of like just general sense. It's like, mm, that doesn't really work. And, you know, it could be because of a crazy tempo or because it's like, you know, you've written it in a crazy range or your singer isn't comfortable singing yeah. or like who knows what. But like there's some combination of things after which point I feel like it's just no longer quite the thing you intended it to be. Yeah. That's interesting. So you're saying like you could have written like the thing that you wrote could have really, really worked. But because of some stray element, it never quite congealed. And then you're sort of like, okay, well, this doesn't work or. Yeah, like I think that can happen. And sometimes like the thing you wrote didn't work and like no amount of other people's special (laughs) sauce is going to make it work. Uh Do you uh, uh, this I'm going to ask a question about collaboration that's related to this um in a situation like that where you're in a room you've you've effectively collaborated with you know a a large number of people to make this moment in a concert or whatever um is it is it your instinct to like collaboration can can be a way of deflecting or deferring (laughs) blame for a problem right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but but uh on the other hand, like, I don't know, maybe you can, maybe you can also see it as if I had created this thing more perfectly, it would have just congealed with everybody in the room. I'm curious about like that sort of tension. I think about that all the time with, so I'm a big Joe Iconis fangirl and there's like, I feel like he has a lot of songs that's just like, they feel like this big glorious party. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I can't even imagine how much of it is like what's on the page, how much of it is how he runs a rehearsal, how much of it is like who those people are that make it such like a beautiful, crazy cacophony. Yeah. 
I feel like that I, I to me that's always felt like oh that's a product of the Church of Joe. Yeah. Which is like the the group of people that he's surrounded himself with who like have this kind of specific family energy i don't want to call it a cult but like but but it's a but it's a strong sense of connection and family like within the joe iconis world and i I think there's like an inst like a shared kind of instinct among the all those people that that this like joyful glorious big church moment (laughs) is just gonna happen yeah because i think that I like the idea. I've been thinking a lot lately about the idea of like writing in a way that creates space for other people to bring their thing. Yeah. But in a way, it is hard. I feel like if you don't already know who those people are, then I feel like it's just like laziness, you know, just like here's where something goes. Sure. I mean, you've worked with Joe. Do you get that sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've only worked with him once, but and it was for this giant Christmas show that there were like 70 of us in the <laughs> show. But it definitely did feel like that, like the the rehearsal room was just like sort of like a um, playroom, like like a playroom in a house that belongs to a family. It yeah. really did feel like that. That's so cool. Yeah. I, I'm I'm curious about uh, this has got me thinking about uh, Philip Glass's collective of musicians that mm. used to like be on the Lower East Side in the '70s that like would just get together every day and and like make music together like like interpret and play his music together like for hours and hours and hours and i'm 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 curious about uh i i think there's like a parallel there yeah between like like having to do with vision having to do with knowing the people that you surround yourself with and just and also just like doing it all the time not that like Joe has shows that well Joe has shows almost every day but oh, he does. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think that's 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 a big part of it too like the more that the more time you spend in a room with people the better you're going to get to know each other's instincts and just the more sort of uh, freedom you're going to feel because everybody knows knows the material or knows what the intention behind the material is and it's like a collective yeah yeah I definitely have always or not always, but once I figured it out, I've like latched onto this idea that like 90% of like being successful in this industry is like finding your tribe, like finding the right people to collaborate with and then never letting them go. (laughs) (laughs) Never let go. Yeah. 